Amen. What a blessing it is to have the, the choir back with us. We feel like a much stronger church family when they are helping us lift our voices to God. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Family Matters, uh, and today we're going to conclude that series with uh, today's sermon. I, I want to say, last week I very much appreciated and enjoyed um, the sermon Church Families Matter, and let me, let me take a moment to brag on the deacons. Um, I don't know what I'd do without them. Uh, we, just a few moments before church started, and we found out that none of the audio-visual equipment was working, none of the live stream was working, uh, one of our receptacles went dead, and so they had to scamper very fast and quickly to, uh, to get everything up and running for today's service. And I prayed a specific prayer. I said, Lord, just let it be working before 11 a.m. And uh, I got a thumbs up just a couple minutes before church. So next time, I'll pray, God, let it be up and running at least a quarter before 11 a.m. <laughs> That'd be very much appreciated, right? But no, in all seriousness, thank God for, for those, those men and the way they serve our church, our church family. I'm uh, very grateful for them. And so this morning, we're going to conclude our sermon series called Family Matters, learning what God wants for you and your family. Here's the deal. Every family has drama, and you know there's no drama like family drama, and every family has problems. But here's the good news about the Christian faith. The Christian faith actually has an explanation for why your family has problems. And even better, the Christian faith actually provides a solution to your family problems. And so we've taken a look at the fact that husbands matter in the family. We've taken a look at the fact that, that wives matter in the family. We've taken a look at the fact that children matter and church families matter. And so today we want to take a look at the fact that parents matter in the church family. Now normally we preach through books of the Bible, but for this sermon series, we've been taking a look at several passages of Scripture that are called the, whole, the household codes and some of the Pauline epistles. And so I'm going to encourage you to simply turn in your bulletin this morning. There's four passages of Scripture we're going to read uh, this morning that will uh, help us as we unpack today's message. Uh, so, so you don't have to flip back and forth in your Bible and get frustrated uh, we're going to print, we printed all of those for you this morning. So hear God's word this morning. The first passage of scripture we, we're going to read is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Hear God's word. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3 verse 21 says, a very similar way, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Since 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then the Old Testament uh, standard here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come this day. That you prepare our hearts and our minds to hear and to heed your word today. Lord, I pray that today in my proclamation of your word, that you would help me to be faithful to your, tech, to your word. 
Help me apply it to the necessities and capacities of the hearers among us. And we'll tune in online. We pray that Christ would be exalted ultimately this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have some free group counseling I'd like to offer to you this morning. So for those of you that have the privilege of having your children among you today, I want to ask the parents to look at their children today and repeat after me. Say, I used to be cool. Okay? Now for those of you that are children here with your parents, I want you to look at your parents and ask them this question. What happened to you? Okay, now parents, I want you to respond by saying, you, you happened to me. Okay, now why do I share that this morning? Because there is a tendency for children to not think that their parents are cool. By the way, I was a little bit concerned this week to to wonder whether or not the word cool still means what it used to. And so I actually consulted with two of our graduating seniors, uh, Beverly Greer and Annabelle Joyner, to ask them if cool still means cool. And they said, yes, it's a a word that has stood the test of time, although there are some synonyms today of chill and vibey, although vibey does seem more like 60s or 70s to me. What does it mean to be cool? To be cool, when you picture cool, you picture James Dean, you picture Elvis Presley, you picture Johnny Depp. To be cool means to be what? Carefree. And really the only way that you can be carefree in this life is to have very little responsibility. And so the reason I had the parents tell their children just a few moments ago that what happened to their coolness is that you happened to their coolness is for this reason. Parents know that when they have children, that suddenly they have a very heavy responsibility upon them. They have another human being that is dependent upon them for food, shelter, protection, education. And so with that weight, with that responsibility comes care and concern. And so, children, the reason that you feel like your parents aren't cool is because your parents care about you. They care greatly about you because they understand that you are a huge responsibility in their life. This week I was reading a survey from U.S. News that occurred, it was a survey they did just back in December that surveyed parents about what are their common fears today. And you could summarize all of the fears around the issue of safety today. I found it insightful that what tops the list of parents' fears about their children today has to do with their safety in relationship either to the internet or social media. There's a great fear among parents today that their children be protected from sexual predators and those that would pursue them online. There's also a great fear among parents today about their children being bullied. And bullying today is not like it used to be. I remember, you know, I was always the shortest kid in the class. I know that seems hard to believe. And so very common for me to go to school and someone want to beat me up and take my lunch money and take my milk money. 
But bullying today isn't necessarily always in person. It's more over text message and social media. There's a lot of cyberbullying that occurs today that has led to a great deal of depression in the life of students and teenagers today. And parents are fearful of that. As some teenagers have even committed suicide as a result of them struggling with how to handle cyberbullying. So parents, you feel that weight, don't you? You feel that responsibility. There are fears that you have that your children be safe. Another reason that parents feel weight is because of some of the weight you put upon yourself. You want your children to have a far greater life than you ever had. You want them to have a far more successful career than you ever had. And so sometimes you take what's peripheral, what should be on the the margins of their life, and you make it the top priority of your children's life, that you want them to be able to keep up with the Joneses. You want them to be able to pursue all these different adventures in life. Like there used to be a day, at least this is the way it happened in West Virginia. My dad was like, look, we can only afford one hobby, so you need to pick one. Is it going to be a musical instrument or sport? If it's going to be a sport, it's got to be one, not three. But I've noticed over the years, as when I was a youth pastor, associate pastor, and senior pastor, how there's been this pressure among parents to feel like their children have to experience a lot of things. Not just one musical, learn one musical instrument, but learn several musical instruments. That they not only play one sport, but they play all the sports. Football, soccer, basketball, lacrosse, swim, you name it. And so sometimes, parents, you put far more pressure upon yourself than even God would put upon you. Let me share a few statistics with you that will help you see the reality of what you're facing. Even if your kid is a great musician, the likelihood that they will become a professional musician is 0.000002%. That's depressing. The likelihood that your child, even if they're an actor, that they will become a, a paid actor is... There's only 2% of actual actors that are making a living by being an actor. Out of all the phenomenal high school athletes that are in the world today, only 1 in 16,000 will become a professional athlete. Another statistic said it this way. If you take the top 1% of all high school athletes, just take the top 1%, only 1% of that top 1% will become a professional athlete. Now, why do I share that with you today? Not to depress you, not to overwhelm you, but hopefully by God's grace to reorient you as parents. Because here are the facts. The likelihood that your child will appear before God on Judgment Day is 100%. And I know how much you care about your kids' exams, and you want them to be ready for their final exam. And the final exam of all final exams is when they stand before God. And so, parents, I want to encourage you today and let you know that you matter. Do you know why you matter? Because the discipleship of your children matters. And that's the... The big idea of today's message today is that, parents, you matter because the discipleship of your children matters. 
It's a good thing for your ch- children to be well-mannered, to be well-educated, to be well-cultured, to be well-versed in things. But what matters most is that they have a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning you should see in your bulletin a sermon outline that will help us unpack today's message as we go through these various scriptures together. And first I want you to take a look at the picture of what God wants for you and your family as parents. The first part of that picture is this, is that he wants your, your children to experience a taught faith. A taught faith. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What was the word, the instruction that God wanted his, these parents to teach their children? It was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was the fact that there's only one true triune God. And he says, And you shall teach them diligently to your children. One aspect of a taught faith involves information. That's the I in your outline. Information. In other words, that parents are going to be intentional. They're going to be diligent about passing the baton of faith to their children. That there is instruction involved. There's information that is communicated to them. We see that also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. J.I. Packer says it this way, the family is to be a community of teaching and learning about God. The family is to be a community of teaching and learning about godliness. Children must be instructed and must be encouraged to take the instruction seriously as a basis for their living. Now don't get me wrong, I believe that Genesis paints for us the first of two goals for parenting. And here it is, Tanner's going to summarize it as simply as I can. You want to get your children as independent as you can, as quickly as you can, right? Now, you don't want to be excessive. Like, you don't want them to come home from the, from the hospital six weeks in and say, okay, it's time for you to start earning your keep. Six weeks in, you should be, you should be potty trained by now. There's, there is a, a logical and a realistic development of your child, but baselines goal for you as a parent is to get your child as independent as you can, as quickly as you can. Now certainly special needs situations and circumstances will, will tailor what they can do when and how much responsibility they will be able to take upon themselves. The scriptures are very cognizant of that fact and are compassionate about that fact. Nevertheless, Baseline goal for parenting is get your kid as independent as you can, as quickly as you can. Why? Because the scriptures say that eventually you want your, ch- your children to leave the house. You don't want to have a failure for them to launch. You want them to be able to, that someday they will leave their father and mother and they will be united to their spouse and the two will become one and they will start their own family. But nevertheless, the ultimate priority is that you pass your faith onto them. That they would receive a taught faith. That they've been informed about the scriptures. They've been informed about who God is and what he's done for them in Christ. And so this instruction involves the training by word. But sometimes that involves reproof and correction. That's the C in the outline. J.I. Packer says it this way, discipline means directive and corrective training 
that is necessary to lead children beyond childish folly to self-controlled wisdom. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One is informative, one is corrective, but it's all part of the faith that they are to be taught. I went to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one of the professors that used to intimidate the tar out of me was Dr. Bob Kara. Um, Bob, uh, is, Bob Kara is an ARP minister, and there's something about his notes that he would give to me that it caused my computer always freeze up in class. And so whenever he saw this puzzled look on my face, he would always call on me, call on me by name, Mr. Klein. I had no idea where he was in his notes because my computer had frozen up. But one day, I'll never forget that the hard-nosed professor began to cry one day in class. He was a hard-nosed teacher and professor. What caused him to cry? It was his testimony. Dr. Bob Kara's testimony is this, that he grew up a minister's kid. He grew up a preacher's kid. And his, his father would preach many sermons. His father would catechize him. His father would try to teach him about the scriptures and the scriptures timeline. But Bob didn't come to faith until later in life. And what caused Dr. Kara to cry was this. I'll never forget him saying in class, he said, how many of you have ever played skee-ball? How many of you, by show of hands, have ever played skee-ball? Okay. You know that the skee-balls are hidden up in the machine. But when you drop the token and the change, what happens? The skee-balls fall to the bottom, don't they? They become accessible. Suddenly what was hidden becomes visible. Suddenly what was not accessible becomes accessible. And what caused Dr. Kara to cry in seminary class, one of the most hard-nosed professors I've ever had in my life, was this. He said his father had taught him the faith. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit regenerated his heart that all of that biblical knowledge, all of that biblical instruction suddenly fell to his heart. And what had, what had become, what had been hidden for many years suddenly became accessible to him. And he said this not to be arrogant, but to be transparent. That for many years he thought his father's instruction of him was an absolute waste of time. And in his father's mind, he had feared the same. But when the Holy Spirit worked in his heart, regenerated him, all of that biblical truth and knowledge became accessible to him. And so I encourage you parents today that you matter. Because the discipleship of your children matters. And there may be some days when you fear that all that you're doing to try to pass your faith on your children is a waste of time. Rest assured it's not. God's word will not come back void. As I've spoken with many men in the church over the years and even some of the men in this church, They've shared with me honestly how they don't feel equipped or educated enough to share their faith and to teach their children their faith. 
So I want you to know that we have listened to you as a pastoral staff. We have listened to you as a Christian education committee. And so there's a slight tweak we're going to try this fall when we crank up Sunday school again. The tweak is going to be this. If there's going to be one adult class that's going to be offered that is going to study the exact same passage at the exact same time as your students, as your children, and your teenagers are studying them. Why is that? We're hoping that we educate you and equip you to prepare you for the conversations with your children about what they have studied at the same time. Our hope and our prayer is that that will educate you and equip you for the conversations that will occur around the lunch table after church. We hope that will educate you and equip you for the conversations that should happen around the dinner table later that evening and throughout the week. Why? Because it's important that you disciple your children. If you're going to disciple your children, there has to be a taught faith that's informative, that they're instructed about what they are to believe. But it's not only a taught faith, it's a caught faith as well. Notice that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. There's no doubt that the scriptures are saying that you are always to be about teaching your children. Now, sometimes that teaching and instruction happens in a formal way. You're sitting down at the coffee table. You're sitting down at the dinner table. You're sitting down by their bedside, and you're teaching them. But as you know, a lot of times those teaching moments occur in informal settings. When you're in the car, on your way to church, or on your way home from church, on your, as you're on the way to school in the morning, as you're on your way home from school, as you're on the way to soccer practice or basketball practice or football practice, a lot of times those teaching moments happen in informal settings. And sometimes your faith is more caught than taught. I think that's partly what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 2 Timothy 1.5 when he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. There's no doubt that there was a formative, uh, there was a formal teaching time between his mother and grandmother and Timothy, but I can't help but lead to believe that given all the problems that Timothy was going to face in ministry, he had seen a beautiful model of his mother submitting to her husband even though he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And that humility and that service and that Christ-likeness was going to be a model for Timothy as he sought to pastor the churches that God would call him to serve. Why is that important? As long as your faith to be taught to your children, your faith is to be caught by you. Your children will watch the way you live your life. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the song, The Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon? Yeah, it's a famous song. If you remember how that song goes, early in the song, this, this young boy comes home from the hospital, and the father is so busy with work and everything he has to do that he can't, he's not there to see his, his child take his first steps and say his first words, and he misses some ball practice and some performances. Later on in the song, His son goes off to college and comes back, and he longs to have his son spend some time with him. But his dad, his son just wants the keys to the car so he can go off and do his own thing. And later in the song, which becomes the most condemning and damning part of the song, is this. 
that now that the father is retired, he longs to spend time with his son. But his son has now moved away, is busy with his own family, his own life, and his own job. And and the condemning part of the song is this. The father says, as I hang up the phone, as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he had grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. What's the point? More was caught than taught. Friends, what's most important to you? Parents, what's most important to you? What's most important to you will be what's most important to your children. And you need to take some time today to soul search and ask, is Jesus essential to your family? Or is Jesus just optional to your family? Because what you prioritize, your children will prioritize. Guaranteed. Because whether or not you're discipling your kids towards Jesus, you're discipling them towards someone or something. So parents, you need to hear that you matter because discipleship matters. And your children are your greatest mission field. That's the picture of what God wants for you and your family. A faith that is taught and a faith that is caught. But what's the problem? The problem is this. In your outline, you're going to see that we have a tendency as parents to avoid responsibility. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of Adam, the, the tendency among men is to, to avoid responsibility, to avoid leadership within the home. Uh, There is a famous British New Testament scholar by the name of F.F. Bruce who's written very high-powered commentaries on the New Testament. As I was studying these passages this week in some high-powered commentaries, I couldn't help but get chuckled by F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. When it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I don't know if F.F. Bruce just didn't have his coffee that morning when he wrote this part of the commentary. I'll try to do as best of an accent of his as I can. But it's a little uncharacteristic with him because it, he, it must have hit a nerve with him. This is what F.F. Bruce says about parents and their tendency to avoid responsibility. Too many parents nowadays foster the latent mischief by a policy of laissez-faire. Pampering their pert urchins like pet monkeys whose escapades furnish a fund of amusement as irresponsible freaks of no serious import. Such unbridled young scamps, for lack of correction, develop too often into headstrong, peevish, Self-seeking characters menaces to the community where they dwell. And the blame? The blame rests with their supine and duty-shirking seniors. (laughs) Well, FF, tell us what you really think. (laughs) One of the most 
leading New Testament scholars throughout the history of the world, pops a clutch right there. And what does he say? The problem with many children today and many teenagers today is that we have parents in the church that are avoiding the responsibility of correcting their children and training their children. And so take it from a very solid scholar that we need to be exhorted by God's word this morning. Be motivated to discipline and correct your children. Now there's a whole background to Ephesians, Colossians that we need to be mindful of. The book of Ephesians has one of the, the, one of the most beautiful, clear, succinct communications of the doctrine of total depravity that we're all contaminated by sin. It also has one of the one of the most clear and concise communications of the doctrine of election and predestination that we're saved not by our own works, but by the work of Christ. And that is the background, that is the backdrop, the doctrinal foundation upon which these household codes then are catapulted into our, into our focus. So sound theology should lead to sound practice in the home. The book of Colossians has one of the highest views of Christology in the New Testament. It communicates the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and it highlights his humiliation in his, in his birth, in his life, and his death. And it celebrates his exaltation, and there's resurrection, his ascension. But out of that sound doctrine come these household codes that instruct parents not to avoid responsibility, nor abuse their authority, but to serve their children in the way that they instruct them. And so that's the second part of that outline under the problem, that we have a tendency as parents to avoid responsibility or to abuse authority. Now, John Calvin has been always painted sometimes falsely, I believe, as a man with no emotions and no tenderness whatsoever, just a, just a cold scholar. But listen to what John Calvin says about these two passages of Scripture. Parents are exhorted not to irritate their children by unreasonable severity. When Colossians and Ephesians tell us to not provoke our children to anger, it's getting at this, that you should not put upon your, your children excessive severe discipline or an unreasonably harsh demands. That you shouldn't be arbitrary in the, the rules that you make up in your house or be unfair to them where you do one thing for your, your son but a different thing for your daughter. That there needs to be fairness across the board. He says there shouldn't be constant nagging and condemnation. You shouldn't humiliate your children in front of others, but rather your rules should be clear. They should be fair. They should be consistent. And that's what I encourage you to do. Rather than filling your house full of a thousand rules of thou shalt and thou shalt nots, remember God was able to summarize it in ten. In the Ten Commandments. But rather have a few rules that, that rule the house that are clear that are fair and consistent for your children. And let me speak to the, to the children, the students, and the teenagers among us. How do you respond to your parents when they get it wrong? You look to Jesus. In the Gospels, we have one account of Jesus as a teenager. 
Jesus is doing the right thing. He's in his father's house. He's at the temple. He's having a conversation with the rabbis there. And Joseph and Mary misunderstand their authority. And they actually abuse their authority in that moment. And scold Jesus for something he shouldn't be scolded about at that time. Because Jesus, they asked Jesus, what are you doing in the temple? And he, he asked them a question. Don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Jesus wasn't being sarcastic. He wasn't being a smart aleck. He was being honest. Hey, don't you remember why I'm here? I'm the Messiah. And Joseph and Mary, I'm sure they snapped their fingers and told him to get in line and get back to Nazareth with them. And what does it say in the Gospels that Jesus did? He went back home with Joseph and Mary, and he grew in wisdom and favor both with God and men. So let me encourage the children, the students among us, that sometimes your parents are going to get it wrong. And sometimes the best thing you can do in that moment, even when your parents get it wrong, is just to be quiet, submit, and obey. Which brings us to the prescription for all of us, which is this. My concern is that we're going to leave here today and parents are going to think they just need to do better and be better. And I don't want you to leave the church today motivated by guilt, but I want you to leave here today motivated by grace motivated by Christ's love for you. And so the prescription for parents today would be this, that your job is to point your children to Jesus with your lips and with your life. Point your children to Jesus with your lips and with your life. William Hendrickson says this, that the very heart of Christian nurture is this, to bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior. Bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior. So here's the deal. Here's what happens between parents and teenagers. Let's just get real. As we become teenagers, here's what we begin to realize about our parents. They're not Superman and Wonder Woman. They're imperfect. In fact, they're sinners. And that can create a moment of insecurity for the parents because they begin to realize that their children are beginning to realize that they're not perfect and they don't have all the answers. (laughs) Don't miss the God-given, Christ-centered gospel opportunity in the middle of your child's teenage years. And here it is. As your your children begin to realize your insufficiencies, you have a much greater opportunity to point them to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. So let me relieve your fears, parents. You're going to mess up. You're not going to get it right all the time. And that's okay. Because what you're doing is discipling your children with a taught faith and a caught faith. And sometimes the greatest thing your teenager can see in you is a heart of repentance. Sometimes the greatest thing your your child can see is the fact that you confess your sin, that you repent of your sin, and they see you growing in your relationship with the Lord. And what you want to see, what you want your children to see between the ages of 12 and 18 or 12 to 20 is this: is that mom and dad is not the same man of God or woman of God that they were eight years ago. 
They're different. That's what you want them to see. And when you, they see that, do you know what you're doing? You're pointing them to Jesus with your lips and your life. And that becomes the Christ-centered gospel opportunity in your family. I'll close with a true story from Ruth Graham. Ruth Graham stood up at the funeral of her father, Billy Graham. And she shared her story. How she had become an embarrassment to the Graham family. Being a preacher's kid, she grew up knowing that divorce was not what God wanted. But after 21 years of marriage, she, was, she got a divorce. And she felt the shame that she brought upon her family. And, and the tabloids got a hold of it and made fun of Billy Graham and the family. Ruth moved and got, moved closer to one of her sisters and she began dating a widower. And her mother cautioned her and her father cautioned her, Ruth, don't rush into another marriage. Don't rush into another relationship. But Ruth says this, I was stubborn, I was willful and sinful. And she rushed into another marriage with this man. And Ruth said within 24 hours of the marriage, she knew she had made one of the greatest mistakes of her life. And she was terrified. Within five weeks, she fled that relationship. And with fear and trepidation in her heart, she began making her way back to her mommy and daddy's house in North Carolina. Now girls, you know you don't want to embarrass your father, right? Ruth said this, you definitely don't want to embarrass your dad when your dad's Billy Graham. And as Ruth began making her way back to her parents' house, she was terrified of what her father would say to her and do to her. And her parents live up on a hill in, in the, on the mountains of North Carolina. She began making her way up the rolling hill. She said she could see her father sitting in a chair on their front porch. And the closer she made her way to the front door of their house, the more her heart began to race as she was fearful about what her dad would say to her and what her dad would do to her. And Ruth says as she began making her way up around the circle drive there, she could see her dad stand up from his chair and begin making his way down the steps of the front porch. And as she parked the car, put it in park, it turned off the ignition and made her way out of the car, she said her dad greeted her at the door of the car. She was terrified about what her dad would say to her and do to her. Do you know what he did? He wrapped his arms around his daughter. He kissed her and he said, Welcome home. Ruth says this, My dad wasn't God. But that day my dad showed me what God is like. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he's loving unconditionally.
Do you want to know what God wants for you and your family? He wants every single one of you to point one another to Jesus. We do that with our lips and with our lives. Parents, you matter. Because the discipleship of your children matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we know you demand perfection. Yet we know we'll fall short every day. So Lord, I pray that what Barto ARP Church would consist of are families that are aiming for perfection, but are gracious and merciful to one another when we fall. But help us to be vigilant and diligent about pointing one another to the perfect Savior who is sufficient for us all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.